Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. So, uh, my name is Shane. I'm a sexaholic. Good, good morning. If you're here uh, on the East Coast of the United States, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, let's start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind be done. Uh, so, yeah, it works if you work it. Um, I was talking to a sponsor yesterday, uh, last night before I went to sleep. He said, you know, I don't even remember what the topic is. But regardless of what the topic is, um, what I know is what in heaven's name would prompt me to wake up at a quarter to five a.m. here in New Jersey to get on an international conference and talk about whatever topic it's going to be, which I know I chose. I just don't remember what it was. Um, And there can only be one answer. You know, it can't be because I'm eager to uh, impress people with some, you know, some knowledge of what page something's on in the big book, you know. And and trust me, I can do that. I know the big book pretty good. Uh, but if at a quarter to five in the morning, I really, I'd rather be sleeping than tell you what page things are on in the big book. So for me, the answer to that question is that um, for a long time, I was up at a quarter to five in the morning acting out because I still hadn't finished acting out from yesterday. And... Um, for me to be able to put a little bit into my recovery that I put into my addiction, like the book says, and for the purpose of carrying the message to the sexaholic who still suffers, that's, that's the only answer. If there's anybody on the line who's in the program and struggling for me to be able to tell you that it works if you work it, that's really, yeah, it's a good topic because it's true. And that's really the only message I'd want to be talking to you about. Um, because I I wasn't so sure. I wasn't so sure. For a long time in the program, I went to meetings. I made phone calls. I had a sponsor. Um, I went to a lot of meetings. I made a lot of phone calls. and. I didn't have any sobriety to show for it. Um, and I just resigned myself to the fact that um, it works for some people when they work it. And I just might be one of those people who are doomed for, to failure, uh, die, die a sexaholic death. And, um, and that's just my fate. And it bothered me. Like, why, why does everyone else seem to be getting more and more sober, more and more recovered as they, you know, and new people came in after me and seemed to catch on and get sober. And and before you know it, uh, you know, what do they say? The light is shining in their eyes. <laughs> and uh, the light wasn't shining in my eyes. Uh, got pretty bad for me. Um the first guy who was sponsoring me was instructed by his sponsor. Well, let me back up a little. But let me finish the sentence. He was instructed by his sponsor that he shouldn't talk to me if he values his sobriety because he'll probably act out if he keeps talking to me. That was the end of that sentence. But backing up, actually, uh, I have a funny story with Harvey. I know he did one of the talks on this uh, on this uh, conference. So I was at a conference uh, actually during that time, uh, a live conference, not an internet conference. 
And I was there with, you know, my sponsor used to always talk about this guy, Harvey, that he talks to all the time. And I don't know who he's talking about. You know, I was new. What did I know? There was names that got thrown around at meetings like Harvey and Bill and Bob and Roy K. And what do I know who these people are? You know, I, I, I don't know that half of them are dead at that time. Could be Roy was alive, but um, I'm at a conference and this little short guy comes walking by and I was talking to him. I said to my sponsor, who's that? He's like, who's that? That's Harvey. I said, oh, Harvey, the guy you always talk about. So I walk, so we walk over to him together and I start talking to Harvey. And, uh, and he turns to my, my, uh, he turns to my sponsor or to me, he says, he says, are, are you on medication? I said, no. He says, you should think about getting on medication. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. Uh, so that was my first hello. And then we're talking for another minute. And he turns to my sponsor and he says to him, are you his sponsor? And he said, yeah. He said, how do you talk to him and stay sober? Oh, man. So that was my second. That was the second minute we had. So anyway. Uh, that 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 conversation didn't go so fantastic. Uh, and Harvey and I, when we see each other, we still joke about it because, and he says, the joke's on him because uh, here I am sober now since June 21st of 2010, which is not a lifetime. It's not an eternity. Uh, if If you're thinking like a normal person, like, you know, we're now going to be coming into 2019, so I'll be coming up on nine years, you know, middle of the year. But, but for a sexaholic who can't get 24 hours of sobriety, I never thought I'd get a week of sobriety. And apparently the sober people around me didn't think I was going to get a week of sobriety either. So... I'm sitting at meetings and my sponsor no longer wants to talk to me. And his sponsor's telling him, don't talk to me for God's sakes. Harvey's telling him not to talk to me. And, uh, and there's fewer and fewer people in the group that are, you know, willing to take my phone calls because I'm burning people out. So here I am really getting to feel what a first step feels like that we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I didn't really think or feel that it works if you work it, because I thought I was trying really hard. I, like I said, I, it's not like I would act out and, and you wouldn't see me at a meeting for the next five weeks. I would act out sitting in the parking lot in my car waiting for the meeting to start, and then I'd go running into the meeting you know, saying things like, I'm sorry, I'm late, you know, and checking in, telling everybody my sobriety date was five, ten minutes ago. So I guess part of the question really is, so what happened? I get that question a lot from people who struggle. So what happened? And um, it becomes especially uh poignant for newcomers who ask me that when when they hear other people like when I celebrate or when I tell my story and people who've been here before I got here will share you know humorously because we got some funny war stories with me and they'll share about like oh god this guy and they'll go on to describe what it was like sitting next to me at a meeting you know if, if we were Alcoholics Anonymous I'd be the guy who smelled like alcohol at the AA meeting you know and they'd say, so what changed? What happened? So I want to share a couple of things that happened and maybe even a little bit about my first three steps. Uh, the first thing that happened was I really, I really connected with this encouragement. The few people that talked to me told me a few things that helped me even when I wasn't sober yet. Yeah. I'm going to try to do this without crying. So. Uh, the first thing is you can't leave before the miracle happens. 
And uh, I really wanted the miracle to happen. And if I leave, the miracle's not going to happen. My sponsor, not the first guy I told you about, eventually uh, a friend in the program took me to a meeting and get, got me a new sponsor, unbeknownst to me or my sponsor. He kind of just introduced us and told my sponsor, Anthony, you're his sponsor. And then he walked away. And Anthony uh, has been my sponsor ever since. Recently, I found another one only because of circumstances. Anthony moved down to Maryland. He's retired. We weren't talking as much, and 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 I'm working on certain things. I needed someone local, but uh, but my sponsor would say to me, you know, suit up and show up, and that's a and that's not something I'm powerless over. I can suit up and show up, whether I'm sober a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade. It doesn't matter, regardless of what's going on in my life and what happened yesterday, tomorrow, right now, right here. I can get my rear end to a meeting no matter what. I can do that. So don't leave before the miracle happened became something important to me. And really, really accepting that I'm a sexaholic. And the fact is, is that if nature takes its course, I will die a disgusting sexaholic death. And, that, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. So get on with life. I don't mean that I shouldn't try to get sober, but but if I do or don't get sober, became uh, it di didn't become the point. The point was that if I wasn't going to get sober, it wasn't going to be because I wasn't going to try. So I was going to do whatever I can do to get and stay sober, knowing full well it probably wasn't going to happen. And for me, that's my first step. Uh, there's this there's this chat, there's this section in the book that I heard other speakers talk about over the last 24 hours. It's the acceptance paragraph in Dr. Paul's story in the big book. In the fourth edition, it's on page 417. And in there, there's a line, he says, um, until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. That's a funny line, but for me, it meant I wasn't going to start staying sober until I fully conceded to my innermost self. I accepted the fact I'm a sexaholic and it doesn't matter why everyone else is getting it and I'm not, but I'm a sexaholic. So uh, the fact that I'm working my rear end off and not having any sobriety was not a good enough reason to give up. Giving up uh, was taken off the table. And if I was going to succeed or not was going to be God's business. If I was going to try or not was going to be my business. And I can honestly say from that day to this, the only thing I've ever done consistently without any relapses is I've kept on trying without giving up. You know, when someone tells you that their sobriety date is June 21st of 2010, uh, I hope you never think that means that whatever that sobriety date is, that they never struggled again, they never lusted again, they never raged again, they never, uh, you know, had those phone calls with their sponsors, should I reset my sobriety again or not, especially early on. Uh, you know, there's a few things that happened in the first few months of my sobriety that if I laugh at it now, because if I would do something like that today, I would not be calling myself sober. But I was so desperate. It was like, I just put, I needed to put one day in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And that's where I was at at the time, you know? So, but what I did do was I never gave up. Giving up's not an option. And, and, and my sponsor would keep telling me, don't leave before the miracle happens. Suit up and show up. And that's what I did every single day. Um, the second thing that was really pounded into my uh, into my brains by people, including my therapist, because he was an AA guy. He told me once, he's like, why don't you go read the stories in the back of the big book and come back next week and tell me which one of those guys got sober without a higher power. Now, I wasn't I wasn't sober and I wasn't, you know, my brains were all over the place, but I was. Uh, intelligent enough, I knew the answer before I went to look it up. <laughs> the answer was nobody. Um, and I knew that without reading the stories, but I read some of the stories anyway. And um, and it was obvious the people who were sober had a power greater than themselves. They had a God of their understanding. And I was going to have to do that. I was going to have to get a higher power. And, um, and I'm so grateful that I 
had to find my higher power in darkness, in in crap, when I was not yet sober, because a lot of people struggle um, to connect with their higher power when they are struggling. You know, when they just lusted, when they just raged, when they're when they know they're not behaving in the, a sober way, and I don't struggle with that because um, I first found a higher power who loved me, and then I got sober. And I'll never sit and try to prove to you why God loves you. Yeah, but what about all the horrible things that happen in the world? And what about all the bad things that happened to me when I was a kid? And what about the fact that this horrible thing happened to me and I don't have a job? And all these things that people will say to prove that God's not loving, to which I say, I don't know the answer. Or maybe I do today. I actually do. But that's not how I found the loving higher power. I found the loving higher power because I didn't have a choice. It was like, find God or die. And the way I was acting out, dying was not a, a, a cute cl cliche. Um, sorry, I'm getting distracted because I can hear, <laughs> I could hear my baby crying in another room and my wife knows that she's got to get him. So I'm going to try to ignore that. Um, so, you know, when I say find God or die, which is a, which the white book, you know, talks about, for me, it wasn't a cute cliche, like die, like, you know, alcoholics can die from overdose or alcohol poisoning or liver damage or driving drunk. I was driving drunk, you know, coming down the Garden State Parkway here in New Jersey at 80 miles an hour with a magazine on my steering wheel. And um, I won't get too graphic about what I looked like in that vehicle, uh, but I wasn't fully dressed. And I definitely wasn't watching where I was driving. So to think that I could have been involved in a uh, fatal accident, just like an alcoholic, is not a, uh, an exaggeration. And just like a drunk guy will say, by God's grace, I didn't kill anybody, myself or others. I can say, by God's grace, I didn't kill anybody, myself or others. So for me, it's, it's I, I didn't have a choice. I just had to say, you know what? Uh, I start talking to a God that I didn't understand. I've heard people say, God of my misunderstanding, you know, whoever's out there, if there's any love in you, can you keep me sober today? I'm really struggling. I just start talking to him and just really start doing the things that people told me to do without being so intellectual and figuring out the theory and the philosophy of why it works. Just work it. Just work it. And I did that. <clears throat> so uh, here's what started happening. Um, I, started, I started stringing together some time. And when I say some time, I'm talking two days, three days. Um, and what, and what, what I started noticing was um, there were certain days where I would go to uh, a meeting in the morning and certain days where I would um, really, you know, do that third step that they talk about. And I would do it right when I woke up and I would do it on my knees. Now, that's not something that the book says you got to do. Uh, but that's what was suggested of me by my first sponsor, the one I told you about before. He had told me to pray on my knees. I asked my second sponsor, do I have to pray on my knees? My second sponsor was a Catholic guy, and he said, if you want to. And I, I tried it both ways. But for me, something about getting on my knees was humble. It was powerful. It was me really feeling like, I, I can't do this without your help. And sometimes it was awkward. Maybe my wife was around or my kids. So I'd get on my knees and look for my shoes under my bed or get on my knees and take some socks out of the drawer so it looked like I was doing something else um, when people are around. And whatever the case is, I'd, I'd do the third step. And I would, I would really, you know, I offer myself to you. I like to say it in modern English, by the way. I don't speak old English. Uh, but, so you know, I offer myself to my higher power, and I imagine 
I imagine like as if I'm a waiter at a at a fancy restaurant and I'm wearing a tuxedo and I've got this I've got this tray and you know the the trays with the lids on them like in the movies where you serve the the steak and you pull the tray off and there's the dish you know and I and I pull the tr- the the lid I mean I pull the cover off the tray and there's me on the tray a little version of me and I come before my higher power and I say I offer myself to thee I'm offering myself to thee, to you, my higher power, to do with me and to build with me as you wish, as thou wilt. That means that whatever happens today, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. And if I'm using shame words, to do with me however the heck you want. And um, it would be in the morning. I would start thinking of things like, what if I spill coffee on my tie? Like, am I okay with that? You know, and I struggle like, no, I'm not really okay with that. You know, and then someone said to me, well, then don't wear your tie when you're drinking coffee, Shim. You know, like, oh, you mean there's some things I can do. Um, But this is how it slowly started to just sink into my consciousness. And I would do the third step in the morning and I'd go to that meeting and I'd quickly make a few phone calls in the morning on my way to work and say, you know, I don't want to pull off the road today. And, and and suddenly end up at work, not knowing how I just ended up acting out somewhere between home and work. And because that would happen. And then just throughout the day, go back to that third step and go back and do the things that people were saying. And I had a sponsor who was telling me certain step work to do. And I would, I would do those step work uh, questions or whatever it was. And on days like that, I'd go to sleep at night. And I'd look at my day, I'd say, whoa, you know, I didn't act out today. And I, I'd say, well, how did that happen? And I'd realize I did a whole bunch of program things today, a whole bunch of things that were suggested to me, not just going to a meeting and making a phone call, but doing step work and really uh, surrendering um, in a way that I was taught to surrender by the old timers, being of service. You know, getting coming early to a meeting to set up, calling a newcomer or somebody who's struggling, just different things people were telling me to do, my sponsor and other people. And I go to sleep at night and say, wow, I didn't act out today. So I really appreciated that. And one of the things that would happen at night is I was taught to say thank you. If I was sober today, even if I was sober for the first day or for half the day, whatever it is, whatever sobriety I had, don't, you know, don't minimize it. Thank you, God, for whatever sobriety I had today. And if I had, and if I had not stayed sober, I would still talk to God. I'd say, thank you for my day. Good night. And I started talking to God. And on those days, I had better days. And then there'd be some days where maybe I went to a meeting, or I didn't, and maybe I missed a meeting, or maybe I'd, I would skip the third step prayer in the morning, or I just somewhere in the middle say, forget that program stuff. And I'd go to sleep at night and I'd look at my day and it was a disaster. You know, I'd be like, whoa, how, what, what happened today? How did that happen? And I'd say, oh, yeah, those phone calls I've been making, I, I, I wasn't making those. Or I was, but, you know, but I was lusting while I was on the phone looking at people walking by my car. Because I can do that, by the way. It's, it's tough, but I can do it. Um, or I just kind of gave up. And I realized not only does it work when I work it, in, in New Jersey we say it works if you work it, it won't if you don't. Because we're, we're a little, we're a little uh, thick up in the skull. Thick, what is it called? <laughs> uh, thick-headed. At least I am. Like I need you to explain to me it works when you work it, and it won't if you don't. Like I need that part yeah, reminded. Uh, I need to be reminded it won't if you don't which means if I give up somewhere in the middle of the day, I'm probably not going to have a good rest of my day. So for me, that became my second step. It works if you work it, and it won't if you don't, became my second step. I came to believe. I came to believe that it works if I work it. And uh, I laugh a lot when I sponsor guys who struggle, and they say, well, the program doesn't work for me. And always I'll say, all right, let's look at the record. Like the big book says, let's look at the record. The days you're struggling, are those the days 
you're working really, really hard at the program, or are those the days that you're kind of giving up and saying, forget it? It's usually the days where we're not doing the work. So that doesn't prove that the program doesn't work for you. That kind of proves that not doing the program doesn't work for you. So how that equals forget it, I'm going to leave the program doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, well, it makes sense if I take a step back and realize that it's frustrating and it's painful and we just want to run away and forget it. And I, and I get that, but it's not true. The program works. Uh, but I've got to do the legwork. I've got to do the footwork. I've got to do the actions. It's not what I thought it was when I was a newcomer. I just show up and some magical thing happens and the group will somehow save me. No, it won't. I've got to be responsible for my recovery and I've got to be responsible to make those phone calls. I've got to be responsible to do those step work. So step work is the uh, final thing that really um separates what my program looked like when I was just doing phone calls and meetings and not staying sober and what my program looked like when I was doing phone calls, meetings, and I was staying sober. Uh, working the steps for me is uh, not a convenience. It's not a cool thing to do after you got some sober time. Uh, I, I can't Stay, I can't get sober time without working the steps. For me, steps one, two, and three uh, are not three steps I work after I get sober. Those are the three steps I work in order to get sober. Step four is the step I start doing after I get sober. Uh, I really believe that's not a smart thing to do when you're not sober. I sponsored a guy who tried doing his fourth step when he wasn't sober. Uh, it didn't go well. Because it's a pain, it is a painful step. It's not as scary as people think it is, but uh, there's a lot of resentments in there, which usually means we're going to be writing about stuff that happened to us as a, as a kid, uh, which ironically is very related to the development of sex addiction. Now, I didn't know that when I was new. I just thought there was this weird phenomenon in me called sex addiction. But as I did the step work, I started realizing the relationship between all of the resentments and trauma that I went through as a kid always coincided with my addiction getting worse. You know, uh, my addiction started when I was in second grade. It got worse when I was in seventh grade, even worse when I was in high school, then even worse when I got married, you know. So, so I started recognizing the correlation between certain events. But if I try to do that work when I'm not sober, I'm just going to be frustrated and it's going to make my addiction worse. But for me, steps one and two, I just told you what that looked like for me. That was all in my acting out time. Now, if you're sober and you haven't started your steps, please don't go back and act out so that you can do it my way. You don't ever have to go back and act out. And please, though, get into your, uh, into your steps because these steps, these 12 steps to freedom, these are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. That's what the book says. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. So if you want to know what is the program of recovery, we talk about the program. The program is the steps. And that's something that I really, really had to learn. And I'm grateful I was, I was told it by people who weren't scared to say it. Um, and I'm not here to get involved in debate. You know, I know there's people who call me all the time and say, well, my sponsor told me I should first get sober and then start the steps. I can only share my experience, strength and hope as a guy who struggled. It didn't work for me. I had to start my steps. I had to admit and concede to my innermost self that I was a sexaholic, that I was going to die a miserable sexaholic death and find a power greater than myself to one day at a time, just get up in the morning and turn my will and my life over and say, please help me. I cannot do this without you. You know, step two. And then over time, realize, wait a minute, this is working. So, Shim, are you ready to turn your will and your life over to care God as you understand them? Step three. You know, by the time I finally took that third step, I was sober, probably about 90 days you know, where I was really ready to turn everything over and get into the rest of the steps. Uh, but the program of recovery are these 12 steps. Um, I think in terms of 
my story and the topic of it works if you work it. I've shared the experience, uh, strength and hope that I've got on that angle. Um, there's obviously a lot more to the program uh, than you know getting through the struggles of early sobriety or or holding on to the um, to the hope that you know not leaving before the miracle happens and keep trying. Uh, but I thought it'd be a better idea. I don't know if one of you guys could tell me if there's any comments or questions. Now would probably be a good time to address them. That was the best talk I never heard in my life. What are you doing here? Get away. <laughs> I, I, I really want to be quiet. Be on the spouter side talking about technology, running the show I, over there. I, just... I, I stole the show for 10 minutes, and now what I really want to do is hear you two talk to each other. So I'm, gonna, okay. I'm going to tell them to take over, and I'm muting myself. <laughs> Good man. Um, no, that was great. Yeah, it really was. It was really good. And um, yeah, I uh, I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm I'm interested in your in what you're saying about you know these 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 three aspects you know that you that, that you need for for recovery, but that business of of you know the crashing again and again and again and again, and you know keep coming, keep working the steps or whatever. What was the you know that I've listened to a lot of speaker tapes, and there's this, this kind of defining moment where somebody just comes in, and you just feel they've just got it now. There's just something that you know they've been searching for, or whatever, and, and somehow the light bulb went on. And uh, you know, what would you say was your of that? And you've seen your talk, but like sort of more more clearly, what was your light bulb moment, and and what was the thing that really pushed it around? Uh, did I skip the part where I met Jesus? I'm well, kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so I'm a Jewish guy, and uh, I'd be happy to meet him because he was a Jewish guy, but that didn't happen. Um, kidding, Rich. Uh, yeah, so here's the thing. I think that every time, every single time, I had that I had to make a decision. Am I going to give up or try again? And I came back. Was a defining moment, maybe not a permanent defining moment, because you know here's the thing uh, that that the book tells me, which is um, lust is a subtle foe. We're not cured of sexaholism. This is uh, in the big book. I said I wouldn't quote pages, but I will. Uh, this isn't step 10 in the big book on page uh, 84. Maybe it's on 83, but it's it's on 83 or 84. So lust is a subtle foe. We're not cured of our sexaholism. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Uh, what that says to me is there is no long-term solution in Sexaholics Anonymous. There's a one-day solution in Sexaholics Anonymous. And for me to buy into this idea that I, my sobriety is not going to be about a week at a time or a year at a time or a month at a time. It's going to be a moment at a time and the longest possible amount of time that I'm going to be able to work my program is it going to be 24 hours. That's a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So each time I, I, each time I, uh, time I, I i relapsed or i struggled or and this still happens today by the way because i don't need to reset my sobriety to do this work any kind of you know struggling lusting raging whatever the case may be i want to go back to my program to my sponsor to my book to my inventory and i want to say so what's happening how is it that i'm here again you know so early on it was the same thing it was like what do I need? What can I do to up my program? Because I don't want to do that again. I really don't want to act out. I really don't. So each time I came back, there was a defining moment for that awareness, for that growth. And somewhere along the line, there's a compilation of those experiences that start to click together. And, um, and, and for me, I don't know that there's any way I could have learned all of that in one shot you know, learned all of those lessons in one shot. 
you know, service, step work, phone calls. I mean, it's overwhelming. Forget it. I'm out of here. It's like each thing happened in its own time. Uh, but there were a couple of things that happened um, that really forced me to uh, take a good look at, at what's going on. One of those actually was my wife. So at some point in my in my struggling, we ended up getting separated. I moved in at my sister's house. She had a basement, uh, a bedroom in the basement, and um, and I told her it would be a couple of weeks till we sorted some stuff out. The uh, holiday of Passover was coming in a couple of weeks. I told her I would be out by Passover. Um, I I I thought it was going to be Passover of the year we were talking about. I was out by Passover of the next year. So I did tell the truth technically. I was out by Passover, but it was 13 months later. Um, now, during that time, at, at, there was one point where I don't remember the circumstances, but I ended up going out for coffee with my wife uh, not far from where she worked. Um, and she said something to me that I happened to have really you know, uh, made an, uh, an effect on me. Um, she said to me something like, I think you're afraid to be sober. Because like I was getting three, four days, five days, even six days, but seven days was like the max. I could not pass that threshold. I would go to a meeting on day six and say, I'm going to get through this day. I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to have seven days of sobriety. And that never happened. Week after week, I would go. And for me, that was great progress because I was, you know, you go from acting out seven times in a day to once in every seven days. I think the program's working. You know, that's where I come from. But she said, there's something about you. You seem to be terrified to like really get into that next level of sobriety. And um, that really made me pause and think like, what am I scared of really? And uh, I was scared. I was scared of a lot of things. Uh, I was scared of what living sober would really look like. I was scared, you know, I used to get scared. Well, what if I get sober and then I relapse? Like then it's even worse. So just do it now. And I learned about this thing called future tripping. Like really anytime I act out, I'm really living in the future because I can get through the day sober. So why am I acting out now? Well, I usually say things like, well, how much longer can I do this? But what does that mean? How much longer can I do this usually means I'm going to act out anyway, so just get it over with. Today, I know how to respond to that uh, stinking thinking, which is how much longer can I do this? I don't know. We're going to wait and find out. Well, I'm going to act out anyway. My response to that is, well, then when that day comes, it will come. But like Harvey taught me, even if my ass falls off, it's not going to happen now or today. Um, and then someone else once told me, and even if it, oh, my sponsor told me, <laughs> I called my sponsor. I said, Anthony, even if my ass falls off, I'm not acting out today. And he laughed and he said, and I'm going to tell you a little secret, Shim, an insider secret. It's not going to fall off. And uh, I remember another time where I was so badly wanted to act out that the only thing I can think of was it was going to be like act out or die. And I called my sponsor. I said, you know what? I'm willing to die today. And he laughed and he said, that's great. Just you should just know you're not going to die. If you stay sober, your ass is not going to fall off. You're not going to die. Uh, staying sober doesn't do that. But it was causing me to have panic attacks. So I needed to learn in therapy how to be able to deal with my anxiety, which was coming back when I stayed sober. When I wasn't sober, I didn't have anxiety because I wasn't sober. It only started happening after I tried staying sober for a little while, and then my anxiety started rising. I never knew what that was. So I don't think we have one defining moment. You know, there's a defining moment that got me into the program, but I don't have a defining moment that suddenly taught me how to stay sober because nothing taught me how to stay sober. I'm a powerless sexaholic, and it was just keep going back to God, the steps, the program, and not for me, I don't think about long-term sobriety. Even even right now, I mean, we're at 20 to 6 a.m. here in New Jersey. When this meeting's over, I'm probably going to go to a, an essay meeting where I live at 6.15 in the morning. And my focus is going to be 
what do I need to do to get to sleep sober tonight? That's it. It's the only day I have is today. And I know how to stay sober for one day. I do. And the secret that I think is that if you know how to stay sober for one day, then you can stay sober for the rest of your life. And if you choose to stay sober in the day that you're in. So that's my answer to that question. This is great. Um, is there anybody who has got questions? Anybody like to sort of shoot up a question there on the chat and sort of uh, shim? This is a... Anybody out there? Yeah, there is a question. So the question yep. comes from Federico. He says, hi, Shimon. Thanks for your ESH. Hello from a few of us logged in from Exeter, UK. So it's not just one guy. You know, this has been a pattern for the whole, for the whole sim that there's been a group, groups of guys gathering around the little screen and we're spreading the message, not just through one, you know, through a bunch of guys. He said, we wanted to ask you ESH on talking some tough love in meetings when fellows dump in the meetings. <laughs> on the one hand, we recognize that it's loving to be direct and to call it for what it is. On the other hand, we're all sensitive sexaholics and we want to avoid harsh judgment of others. Thank you. All right. Let me go see. Uh, that person, that was uh, Federico. And uh, I appreciate the question very much and I appreciate you guys logging in. And um, I love that people are committed to the program. And um, I got to remember that when people hold their rear end out of bed, and they get out of their house and they go to a meeting, uh, they're doing something. They might not be good at what they're doing. They might not be uh, successful at what they're doing. But please don't assume that someone sitting in a chair at your essay meeting is full of crap. Because uh, I could tell you as, the, as that guy for a long time, um, I could tell you what didn't work for me. And then I could tell you how I, you know, my experience, strength, and hope. When I, I, I came in to the program, I was, I was beaten up enough by myself, by my disease. I mean, my disease beat the crap out of me, and I didn't need anybody else doing it. Uh, what I, I needed somebody to hug me and, and for me to believe that they knew what I was going through. They knew how it felt to be a sexaholic because out in the world, I don't believe anyone knows what it's like. When my wife catches me uh you know when she goes through my browser and sees that i was looking at pornography she's pissed she's not saying wow i feel bad for you oh you know uh, uh let me give you a hug it's so painful to be. no she's not saying that she's saying what the heck are you doing get out of the house and the only if i'm not gonna get love at a at an essay meeting where am i gonna get it now that doesn't mean when a guy relapses and comes in and he's dumping on the meeting that we all clap and say, here, why don't you take us out with a prayer of your choice? I think that's ridiculous. Um, so uh, I, I as, the, as the chairperson of a meeting, if some guy is sharing in the problem or talking explicitly or dumping, I'm more than happy to raise my hand and cut him off and say, you know, I, I, can you focus on the solution? Um, but the question I think that everybody really has to ask themselves and take inventory of is, are you getting sick and tired of that guy? Are you resenting him? Because if you're not loving the, if you're not loving the sexaholic who still suffers, who are you carrying the message to? You know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other sexaholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Who is that sexaholic we're carrying the message to? If it isn't the guy in your meeting who's sick and suffering, you're going to carry a message to the sober guy who already has had a spiritual awakening. He's got, he's got to be carrying the message. He's, he's, he, you know, he's one of the winners. He's got to be carrying the message. You're going to carry the message to someone who's not in the program who decided not to come to a meeting today. You know, so, so everyone's got to ask their higher power, you know, what is your will for me? What should I say to this guy? And it should be based on your experience, strength, and hope. I sponsored a guy who sponsored a guy. And the guy that he was sponsoring was struggling a lot. And he was just, you know, always calling his sponsor after he acted out, not before he acted out. And 
usually wasn't even going to meetings. And when he did, he was just dumping, you know. And um, the guy who I sponsored asked me for help, you know, as a sponsor. He said, um, I think I should tell the guy, you know what, if you're not ready for this, then go back out there. And when you're ready, you should come back. Now, he's asking me if he should tell that to his sponsee. And I can tell you my my bias. I don't. I didn't like hearing that, and personally, I didn't find that helpful. Uh, all the people that told me that they just ended up on my fourth step, and I could find no no link between that message and my sobriety. But that's not his message. I said to the guy, I said, I want to know something. When you were new, did anyone ever tell you that? And he said, Yeah. His first sponsor told him that, and I said, Was it helpful? And he said, Yes. He said, when I was new and my sponsor told me that, his experience was that he had to stop and think to himself, what do I want? Do I want this program or do I want to go back out there? Because I got to get serious about recovery. And his story was that it was helpful for him. And I didn't like saying this, but I said, if that's your experience, then that's all you can share. Because around here, we don't give advice. We don't tell people what to do. We share our experience, strength, and hope. And if your experience, strength, and hope is that you were given a message of, you know, you know, go back out there till you're ready and come back, then I guess that's what you'll have to say. I don't say that to people because that's what my experience, strength, and hope is, is I needed the people that said, Shim, we're going to love you until you're, until, you're, until you're well enough to love yourself. And hold on, I'm getting distracted. What's that clicking noise? Oh, sorry. So, um, you know, we're going to love you until you're sober or until you're well enough to love yourself. And trust me, I didn't love myself. So when a guy came over to me after the meeting and said, listen, whatever's going on, you're a sexaholic and I love you. And he'd give me a hug. That stuff was the stuff that kept me coming back. And and, uh, you know, as a group, there's a different question, which is the group has got traditions. And the first tradition says that that individual sobriety depends on group unity. Um, and our common welfare comes first. So we have to realize that, you know, if we're, are we a group that's carrying the message? Because that's the primary purpose of any uh, sexaholic group. Our primary purpose, which is our fifth tradition, says uh, to carry our message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Are we as a group carrying a message to the sexaholic who still suffers? For me, that's my responsibility when I get to a meeting. If I don't like the way the shares are going, then let me raise my hand and share on the, on the solution. Let me bring the solution to a meeting. Um, and, and I'm powerless over anybody else. I could just say, you know, raise my hand and, and do my 12 step work. And if somebody likes my message, then they'll ask me for my experience, strength and hope. And if you have enough people who are focused on the solution, then it becomes a meeting where there's a solution. And, and the other thing is, there's if your group doesn't have a group conscience, meaning a uh, a business meeting at least once a month, then start having a business meeting. And one of the topics at the business meeting can be: Are we carrying the message? Are we a group that's focused on the on the solution rather than on the problem? And if we're not, what can we do differently as a group? Um, you know, some groups have had a group conscience in which the first uh, 20 minutes of the meeting. Uh, you only have people with 90 days of sobriety or more sharing. The groups that I've gone to in New Jersey, that's never passed. That's always been uh, denied. But we have had group conferences where we have meetings that are focused on the steps. And the first half of the meeting, the only sharing is done is, the, is on the reading and on the steps. And then after that, you can open it up for, for sharing. So if the reading is on steps six and seven, then the only people sharing the first half of the meeting are the people who have either worked six and seven or in the middle of doing six and seven or who want to talk about getting into six and seven. Uh, and then you'll have the rest of the people sharing later. But by the time we get halfway through the meeting, there's already an environment, an atmosphere, a culture of we're focused on the solution here. 
That's great. Yeah, we, uh, uh, we, we, we actually did pass that on our Saturday night meeting, the 90-day the rule. Um, and then we allowed five burning shares at the end. And it, it really, um, it's, really a, it's really a strong meeting. Um, you had answered uh, to your previous question. You said, thank you for that answer. I also beat myself up enough before coming to SA, and I really did need that love and acceptance. Um, now we have a question from my good friend Lippy in the UK, and he says like this, as a man with a young family, you know how difficult it is to get away to weekend conventions. I really want to get to international conventions, but I don't know how to deal with the fact that it's really difficult for my wife to be alone for the weekend with the kids, and it's almost as difficult to park out my kids for the weekends. What's your experience with this? And, you know, I have the same, I have the same question. I manage once a year to, to escape. Uh, <laughs> if I'm lucky. And I don't mean escape the house. I mean escape into a, a, a full weekend of recovery. So, yeah, go, go ahead. Um, so my recovery has got to come first. And if I put my family before my recovery, I'm going to lose both of them. And if I put my religion before my, my recovery, I'm going to lose both of them. And if I put my job before my recovery, I'm going to lose both of them. That's the first thing that I hope everybody understands. And I have experienced that and learned the hard way. My, my sobriety is number one on my priority list. And it goes like this. Programming God first. Um, but then it goes my wife second. I have destroyed my family, and the big book talks about this in step nine and a few other places. When I was uh, in my addiction, I was actively destroying. You know, I love what uh, the old timers say I have a disease so powerful it kills people that don't even have it. And if you're curious where this is in the big book, I encourage everyone to read it. It's on the bottom of page 82 and the top of page 83. And uh, if you can read that without crying, you still need some more time because that's every sexaholic story. We're like tornadoes roaring through the lives of others uh, and relationships are destroyed and feelings. I mean, the people that we really just, we are, it's like Hurricane Shim came to town and just completely wiped out the city. Like uh, if my recovery is not including a, living amends like it says on the top of page 83 each day asking my higher power meditation what can i do today for my family to show them you know the the, the kindliness the tolerance the pity the love that that there wasn't that i didn't have when i was acting out i'm not really i'm not really there but here's the thing um my answer that i said at the beginning that my program's got to come first um the program is the steps. The program is staying sober. Here are the steps we took that are suggested as a program of recovery. I love conventions. I've been to many of them. But conventions is not the program. Conventions is part of the SA fellowship. And if I can get to a convention, great. If, my, you know, if I could sit with my family and say, how can I make this work? This is important to me. Um, is there a way to, you know, like, like, Daniel's doing now. Daniel's been on this line no matter what time of day, the last 24 hours, he's been sitting there. I don't know what the heck. I slept for two. Oh, you did? I'm disappointed. (laughs) But I'm guessing, I'm hoping that he didn't uh, wake up Thursday morning and say to his family, oh, by the way, guys, you won't see me for the next 24 hours. You know, then he's then he's doing the same Hurricane Daniel that he was doing before. So there's there's a respect and an understanding that somewhere along the line, I could say to this uh, wife of mine, this family of mine, is th- is this something that we can arrange? I'd like to get there. I've said that many times, and most of the time, the answer was, I'm needed at home. I'm not I'm not a big fellowship guy. I don't go out a lot for coffee with guys. I'm not out playing football on Friday afternoon when the Sabbath is coming in a few hours and my family is going topsy-turvy and my house is upside down and someone's got to vacuum the playroom and we still don't have soup up on the fire, you know, and, and three kids got to get showered. I'm home being of service, taking the lessons I learned in Sexaholics Anonymous and applying it in my life. 
And the book says that if you read page 100 and 101, it says that when we were drinking, when we were acting out, we were withdrawing from life. Now that we're in the program, we should be contributing to life. And for me, priority one after staying sober and my higher power is my family. My family is always going to become more important than uh, going out for some personal fun. I, I did my time. I had my fun. I got in my car when my family needed me home and I went out on the town and painted the town red. It's not like I haven't done that. So for me, um, there's a difference between my my program that I work in the day-to-day program with my sponsor and with my meetings and then the outside fellowship in which I have to really do some prayer and meditation and and consultation with my wife and say, is this something that we can pull off or not? And how about turning to your wife and saying, you know, I've d- I do so much program. Is there any way I could stay home and you can get out and you can get to a convention or you can get to a, a women's night out with your friends of some sorts? So uh, it looks here like we're at the end of the hour. Um, I will read the comments uh, after I log off and, and I could post a little bit of my reactions to some of those. Yeah, we see- have one last question. Yeah. Uh, we do have a couple more minutes. We'd like to be um, precise here. Uh, all right. How you doing, Ahmed? Nice to see you. Use my nuclear clock, thanks to Apple. I show that we have four minutes more. Although, oh, great. Uh, yeah, just one last question. Um, um, and, and by the way, Hurricane Daniel is still lurking there a little bit, although uh, <laughs> yeah, he did say you're not going to see me that much, but I did manage to get to the shops, say goodnight to my wife, be with the kids several in between several sessions. And as I mentioned, I am taking them all away to make up for Hurricane Daniel not being around. Uh, so we're all, we're all rushing out of here in an hour to a hotel. Um, the last question was, how do you handle judging brothers that are still acting out? Do you have such a problem? How do I handle brothers? Judging brothers that are still acting out. When you say brothers, I'm assuming you mean guys in the program. Yeah, brothers. He means fellows. Yeah. Um, how do I manage judging them? I want to tell you something. I wish I could say that that's never happened to me. And I've never judged anybody. Uh, but I had opportunity to go back and read some of my fourth step. And I had some sponsees on there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just want to, whoever you are judging people, that's your ego. And you forgot where you come from. Let me just tell you, all I need to do is remember what my sister's basement looks like. And whatever judgmental, uh, whatever judgment I have left is out. The reason I judge a sponsee is because I'm scared that I'm scared that he's going to judge me for not being a good sponsor because he's struggling. So my best defense is a good offense. And I judge you for being a, 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 a struggling sponsee. So when there's a guy in the Harvey said in the <laughs> session, you know, he was harsh. He was a harsh on a question. And then he immediately, you know, made his amends by saying that I'm in fear. That's why I'm being. It's, it's the only reason I judge sponsees is because I know I can't control anybody. And do, and do I really believe that step one, when we admitted we were powerless, do I believe that? So do you believe in powerlessness or not? Or do you believe that this is really just a bad habit? And I can tell you right now, this is not a bad habit. I didn't. I, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you my war stories. I won't. And, and uh, maybe Ahmed will tell you his. But I'm Jed. Oh, I'm Jed. I'm sorry. But we admitted we were powerless in the plural form. So when you're judging somebody, just spend a moment to tap into your first step and remember that whatever powerlessness means for you, that's what it means for him. And thank God that you got the miracle but it's not, it's not by, it's not because you're a great guy. It's not because you're a great guy that you've been able to have some sober time. It's because either you've been working, willing to go to any lengths and he still has to learn or some miracle happened for you. But please, whether you're a tough love guy or a, or a love, love guy, the love has to be more important than the tough. All right. Uh, I appreciate everybody's participation. I appreciate oh, thank you so much, Jim. I can't wait to hear the, the, the first half an hour. Unfortunately, I was pulled into talking about technology, but my higher power spoke through me. And, um, and I really I can't wait to hear, to, hear, to hear the half an hour. I have the uh, access directly to the recordings, and I'm going to run to it because right. um, I really appreciate you getting up early. We all appreciate it. And the message is going to go there. So 
And I got more out of it than you probably did. Should we close with the serenity prayer? Let's do it. Let's do it. Amjad, you want to join us as well? You can um, let me unmute Amjad. All right. Oh, yes. Okay. God. God, grant me the serenity. Serenity to accept the things that cannot change. The courage to change the things that can. And the wisdom to know the difference. You will. All right. Thank you, Shimson. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.